All right, welcome in, everybody. Thanks for joining us for a Monday edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. We're going to get your week started right with news and information from a biblical worldview. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brasher Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville, where you're welcome to come and join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 if you don't have a place to worship, don't leave your own church for that, But uh, unless you just want to come visit. But if you're looking for a church, we'd be glad to have you. I'm currently preaching through the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning, um, which has uh, created a lot of interest in the church, so you might want to join us for that. All right, Chinese officials are escalating their war of words with the United States. We're going to start out talking a little bit about China today, and I want to express some of my concerns and where they lie when it comes to China and Chinese propaganda. Uh, Chinese officials are also planning to increase their military aid to Russia, including the possibility of the provision of lethal weapons. Now, a lot of people are coming out this weekend and saying, look, if China gets involved in the Russian-Ukraine war by providing lethal weapons to Russia, right now they're providing aid, there's no question. They're providing help and aid for the Russian military, drones in particular, but no lethal weapons, only reconnaissance drones and that kind of thing. But if the Chinese begin to provide weapons to the Russian army, that's going to be a major escalation of the war, and it could really uh, begin to pull other countries into open conflict. So we're prayerful that that's not going to happen. But now, And you might ask the question, what do the Russians and the Chinese have in common here? I mean, what is their their unified goal? Well, obviously, they're both communist countries. Um, They share an ideology of how to control their people, run their government, and so forth. Uh, They also have a common enemy in the United States, and particularly the West, not just the U.S., But all of the Western allies, they have a common enemy against NATO. And so you have you have that commonality between them. And then also they both have designs on their particular parts of the world. I I think China thinks the entire world is their particular part of the world. I think Russia thinks that they want to control Europe. They want I think Putin's goal has always been to bring the old Soviet Union back online, to bring Poland back into line, to bring Ukraine back into line, to bring Georgia back into line, to bring, I mean, you name it, uh, Romania, um, you know, Moldova, all of the countries that used to revolve around and make up the Soviet Union, Putin would like to see them back in the fold, increasing Russia's power on the world stage. And China, of course, has its designs on Taiwan It has its designs on the Philippines. It has its designs on Japan, ultimately. They've made no secret about this. And so world conquest and the expansion of of their own um, 
power in the world through military means is something that pulls the Chinese and the Russians together. China's immediate reaction after the balloon shooting was that it was a weather balloon that was simply blown off course. You remember that? You remember when we were tracking the balloon, the Chinese were saying, oh, this is no big deal. This is just a a monitoring device for weather that got blown off track and everybody just needs to calm down. Uh, They claimed the fact that it entered U.S. airspace was just an accident. It was uh, flying around uh, China, I guess, and you talk about getting blown off course. I mean, coming in, entering the United States across um, Alaska, through Canada, Alaska, and then into Montana, where we just happen to have a whole bunch of missile silos that contain nuclear uh, missiles and weapons. Uh, that, that, that's, that's just a coincidence. I mean, golly, it, we, they were interested in the weather over Montana. Montana has an interesting weather pattern. Yeah, it's called nuclear weather. Nuclear winter is what they're actually interested in, which is what they would like to cause over the United States if they could. Um, Once it became obvious that this thing was a spy balloon, then the tone from the Chinese officials changed, and they started charging that the United States was overreactive, they were trigger-happy, and then they began to blame the United States for creating tension when there was no reason for tension. Oh, of course not. You just have this massive three-bus-size spy balloon traveling over sensitive U.S. sites. Um, I mean, why, why would there be tension? Why would anybody be concerned about that? A country that's declared that they would like to see the end of the United States, that they would like to be the world-dominating power, that they would like to take over a lot of our allies in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I don't know why anybody would be concerned about that. Um, why, why, should, why should we be trigger-happy? Uh, China's foreign minister spokesperson said the U.S. needs to stop addressing the importance of communication and dialogue while fueling tensions in the crisis. So as you know, the Biden administration has been telling the American people, look, we're we're still talking to China through back channels. Of course, uh, it's kind of caused some concern when members of our national military uh, leadership said usually when they pick up the phone and call their counterparts in China, they answer right away, and they got no answer for a while. I mean, they were trying to contact their counterparts, and they got static, which is never a good sign. When the back communications channels begin to break down or get cut off for any reason— then there's reason for us to be genuinely concerned. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with China's top diplomat on Saturday, and according to a transcript of the meeting, Blinken spoke directly to the unacceptable violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law, and he said that the irresponsibility of this act must never be repeated. In other words, guys, you broke international law, you violated U.S. sovereignty, and this better not happen again. And according to reports from the meeting, there were no apologies from China. They said that the incident showed that the U.S. was weak, hypocritical, and guilty of warmongering. So that was their response directly to Blinken. Now, if you, when you start thinking about that, you know, this is, this is not the increasing of dialogue between two countries that could literally destroy the world if they had a mind to. Um, so it, it, it would be better if we could turn the tension down a little bit. And, and yet it doesn't seem that we're moving in that direction. The Biden administration wants to look strong 
to the American people. The Biden administration wants to look strong to the rest of the world, and instead they exude weakness in many ways. Um, they, they still want to maintain, though, diplomatic relations with China. So how do you do that when you're president of the United States? Well, first of all, you shouldn't be president of the United States if you're in your 80s and absolutely incapacitated mentally in terms of being full strength. Now, I'm not saying that President Biden is um, a, just a total case here, but I am saying that his age and the bumbling and fumbling that he commits when he's making public speeches, the stories that he tells that are not tethered to anything that's even near the truth, all of that indicates that the president is 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 not at the top of his game when it comes to his mental acuity, no matter what the doctors say. You know, this big story about his getting his physical and how he passed with flying colors, that he's a healthy and energetic 80-year-old. Well, uh, that's I've never been concerned about whether he can ride his bicycle or whether he can walk from point A to point B without falling down. What I'm concerned about is can he communicate clearly does he have all of his faculties? And this is going to be particularly important when we realize that the president is going to be meeting with Xi Jinping, or at least talking to him on the phone. There's going to be direct contact between them. And folks, that concerns me because we need someone who is at their best when they're dealing with a Chinese dictator like Xi Jinping. This guy is crafty. Um, he's, he's not particularly tethered to the truth. Um, he's got world domination on his mind. And having the president of the United States talk to him, should, we should have confidence that the president is going to be able to push back when necessary and be able to lead the Chinese leader toward a better relationship with the United States. Does anybody have the feeling that Joe Biden can do that? I mean, I, I'm just being fair here. Does anybody think that in, in his current condition mentally, that the president of the United States, that it makes you comfortable to know that our number one enemy in the world, China, is going to be talking to the president about tensions between the two countries. I mean, I, I, just, I just hope that the president doesn't get confused and start quoting Matlock to him or something. I mean, I, th th this, is a, this is serious business. This is commander-in-chief of the United States, of the free world, the most powerful country in the free world. Um, what are these conversations going to be like? A couple of notables that you probably know about. Um, we have an update on their health. We lost Richard Belzer over the weekend. He was a longtime stand-up comedian um, and became one of TV's most identifiable detectives as John Munch in the series Homicide, Life on the Street, and Law and & Order SVU. He was also on Law and Order and all of the Law and Order franchise. He kind of made the rounds, uh, but always playing the same character, Detective Munch. He was 78 years old, and he died in his home in southern France, surrounded by a lot of his friends over the weekend. Also, uh, Tom Sizemore. You may remember him in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, he was also in Pearl Harbor, the movie. Uh, there's been a lot of war pictures, but a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. Um, Black Hawk Down, he was in that movie as well. He's 61 years old, and he had a, suffered an aneurysm, a brain aneurysm over the weekend, and he's in the hospital in critical condition. So it would be good uh, for us to 
pray for Tom Sizemore and to remember Richard Belzer's family um, as they go through the separation and loss of loved ones. Um, I think Sizemore is not expected to recover from this. Most, Most people who have an aneurysm like that in the brain that burst um, they will be on life support for a while and then pass away. And now we, we hope that that's not the case with Tom Sizemore. But uh, that's been the pattern, and there's nothing in this story to suggest that this this is, is going any differently. So please pray for them and the family. All right, uh, back to the story about China. Uh, President Biden announced Thursday that, he, that he's going to be speaking with Xi Jinping. Now, no time frame has been set for the meeting. We don't know when the president is going to speak with him. We don't know if there's going to be a – is this going to be a face-to-face meeting? Is it going to be a telephone call? It's likely going to be a call and not a face-to-face meeting. Um, and one of the things that is a little concerning about that is that it raises the – the seriousness of the situation, because this is a rare occurrence for the president of the United States to speak to Xi Jinping. Uh, I think that's only happened like one other time during his presidency. So the fact that they're scheduling this at all means that tensions are high and President Biden's job is going to be to try to lower the tension, the temperature in the room. And I just I just don't have any confidence in that. I mean, I hate to say that. I, I take no joy or pleasure in the. Even though uh, President Biden is a is a Democrat and his policies are diametrically opposed to what I believe America is supposed to be, um, I, I obviously I want the president when he represents the country to our uh, most dangerous adversary that he does a good job that he puts us in a position where. China would think twice about attacking Taiwan or the United States, um, and that China would think twice about sending lethal weapons to the Ukraine. But I just don't have any confidence that our commander-in-chief in his current mental state has the ability to do that. I'd almost feel better if uh, Xi Jinping was going to be talking with some other diplomat, a high level, maybe Anthony Blinken, having the conversation directly with Xi Jinping as opposed to the Chinese top diplomat, which is what happened on Saturday, maybe it should be Blinken. And and I realize that that's not the way it works diplomatically. You don't have your number two guy or your number three guy or any other guy. When you're talking about Xi Jinping, you're talking about the president of China. That requires a direct conversation with the president of the United States. It's just that that we just don't know how that conversation is going to go. By the way, updates on the objects shot down last week, they're all believed to um, have been not from China. None of the objects represented any kind of security threat at the end of the day. And the effort, one of the reasons we know this for sure, is that the effort to recover any of the debris from any of those objects has stopped. All of the uh, balloon debris that can be collected has now been collected. I doubt we will hear very much more about what that balloon was carrying because of security concerns. But we do know that there's not going to be more searching for any of the remnants of the three objects that were shot down during the week. But one of them, we know it was a balloon launched by the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. And this this is a group 
it's a bunch of ham radio operators who had some antennas and some uh, tracking devices attached to this small balloon, and they put it out there to track it around the world via ham radio. I mean, it was just a it was a hobby, and you know we shot the thing down. It, it actually cost twelve dollars to make. I was I was fascinated when I was reading about this because it talked about the fact that it was a mylar balloon. Now mylar is what you go and buy for your birthday, you know, or anniversary or when a baby comes. You know, you go down to the, the hospital gift shop and they have these balloons that are, you know, different sizes and usually they're on a stick and they're stuck in some flowers or, or something and they say, congratulations, it's a boy or congratulations, it's a girl or, or congratulations, we know you haven't decided yet, but you'll decide later what sex your child is going to be. I mean, you know, they have all kinds of messages on them. Turns out these Mylar balloons do really well at high altitudes when you pump them full of helium um, instead of just just air. And that's that's basically what got shot down, you know, a, 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 Mylar, a Mylar balloon. We, we don't know if it had any kind of message for ham radio operators on it, but they were tracking it with the antennas that were attached um, as part of their hobby and, and seeing, you know, how many times it was going to make it around the globe at high altitude. And so the United States military shot it down for them. Um, we, we were having a discussion the other day about how to get how do we get rid of a particular thing that's causing some some problems. And I thought to myself, well, let's just put some balloons on it and raise it up to about 30,000 feet, and we can get the U.S. military to come take care of it for us. It'll, they'll just come shoot it down. <laughs> Whatever we get up in the sky high enough, it'll become a target for them. Um, and, and all of this, of course, is all every one of those objects that were shot down was the result of NORAD turning up its radar, so so to speak, which begs the question, why wasn't it turned up anyway? I mean, are, are you telling us that you haven't been detecting these objects? And if and, and by the way, if you know that, our enemies know that. If, if, if we're being told that our uh, detection capabilities have been enhanced, then that means that there was room for enhancement that we had the ability to do without a whole lot of trouble, but we just never... We just didn't do it for some reason. So um, all of that's uh, fairly interesting. But but this the shooting these objects down, I mean, it became obviously political. I mean, it was, yeah, we were finding them. Yes, they were within the possible range of air traffic. But apparently these things are up there from corporations and hobby groups all the time. But all of a sudden, for a week, because of the sensitivity over not shooting down the Russian spy balloon, which was a threat, we decided to go back, or the Biden administration decided to go back and shoot down a bunch of balloons that were non-threatening. So, look, I would I would recommend that if you're having a birthday party for your kids, uh, you might be careful about, if you're outdoors, how high the balloons go, uh, even if they're tethered. You don't want the United States Air Force coming over with an F-22 and firing a sidewinder at your kid's birthday party. Now, that's, yes, that's an exaggeration. But it's just fascinating to me that for a week we had the entire country stirred up. We had all these stories out there about, wow, these are UFOs, and how do you know they, were, they weren't manned? And 
it turns out just to be corporate, you know, business owned or in, in one case, as we just described, a hobby by a bunch of people that are ham radio operators that are flying this balloon around the world just for kicks. Um, I, it, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff that the, that the United States military got involved in that and that we, we don't have the capability of identifying these objects more that's to the point that we would know that they weren't a threat before we actually took them down. Now, all this talk about how much it cost, look, that to me, that's piling on, and it, it nobody is concerned, at least I'm not. Let me put it that way. I'm not concerned about how much it costs to fire a Sidewinder missile at an unidentified object. I'm not concerned about how much it costs to fly that F-22. I don't care that the F-22s are $200 million a piece. I mean, what, why are we having that conversation? I mean, I— you know, it just doesn't matter to me that that's politics. When you begin to talk about that, um, you know, how much it cost. Yes, I, I get it. It was unnecessary. It was something that happened. But that's that that shouldn't have happened in terms of shooting these objects down. But that's what concerns me. I don't care about the cost. I care about the decision making. What went into the idea that we need to shoot these objects down? And we did, were they shot down just primarily so that the president could look tough instead of looking weak by letting a surveillance balloon fly all the way across the country? But, but it is kind of a picture of the entire Biden administration and the way they approach things that a, a legitimate threat to the United States, a very sophisticated surveillance balloon, is allowed to traverse the entire country for eight days and yet we're shooting down uh, these non-lethal, um, non-information-gathering objects that are owned by hobby groups and corporations. We shoot them down immediately while letting a Chinese surveillance balloon hang around for eight days. Uh, look, that's, that's the problem. Let's focus on that. Let's think about what that means as it comes to decisions that are being made by this administration. I think we have a right to question them. March 31st is going to be the last day for his radio talk on 91.9 and 89.7. The frequencies are going to be switching over to a music format, which means this radio program that you're listening to right now is no longer going to be available on the station. And, uh, of course, all of the talk programs from uh, wall builders to others that you may listen to, um, they're, they're going to be gone starting April 1st. Gary Miller's retiring, and uh, the station's going to, uh, use these frequencies for a different format. But never fear, you can still listen to this radio program if you become attached to it in any way. I'm going to be broadcasting it live over a website that's being developed right now for me. Um, and it's going to, we're going to change the name. It's going to be Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. So Truth in Politics and Culture, TPC, is, uh, we'll probably end up nicknaming it that. Um, and it'll start out, it's going to be from 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday. You'll be able to listen to it live for an hour, for that hour time, and then it'll be a podcast that you can subscribe to for free, and you can listen to it anywhere, uh, anytime on your smartphone or tablet or computer, whatever device that you use. If you're accustomed to listening to this program as you're going to work, you can simply go to the website where it'll be streaming live, 
and uh, they're still working on the domain name for the new website. But you can go to that website, and you can uh, stream live the program and then use a Bluetooth or plug in your phone or smartphone to your car and listen to it through the radio just as if you were listening to a radio station. So there's going to be plenty of ways to t- to uh, enjoy the show. Uh, we're going to start out with um, just we're, we're hoping to move toward a format where you'll be able on the website uh, to hear information coming from Hannah Miller, coming from Corey Truax. Um, we're actually probably going to build out a separate website for that. I've been talking to these guys that do all this stuff over the weekend, and they said it would be better to start out with a website that focuses on material that I'm putting out and then expand that to include the others that uh, already have their own websites. So we'll get started with one that will support this show and then see about expanding it um, hopefully pretty quickly in the future. All right. Um, Let's take a look at the story. You, you know, when progressive activist groups decide to go after conservatives, they're doing it on the idea of shutting down conservative speech. The federal government, of course, is prohibited by law from the First Amendment from abridging anybody's right to free expression. So, you know, as much as the Biden administration was like would like to, um, and as much as they're trying to um, get involved in shutting down con- conservative thought in a sort of backdoor way, they can't just openly come and say, okay, all you conservatives over here, shut up. We're not going to allow you to have platforms. We're not going to allow you on Twitter. We're not going to allow you on Facebook. We're not going to have you out here expressing your opinion. Um, instead of doing that directly by the government, they're doing it subtly. We're going to talk more about that in the program today because this, it, it really is a, a, an attack against conservative thought. But they're, they're doing it through the corporate world. They're working backdoor deals. When the, when the federal government's inviting Twitter executives, uh, they're meeting with Twitter executives to talk about what stories are real news and what stories are not real news. Then that's the federal government working behind the scenes to influence the messages that you're able to receive. And the government shouldn't be able to do that. When federal tax dollars are going into a British company whose, as we talked about last week, their purpose is to undermine advertisers, to put out a blacklist of ad, of, of uh, disinformation websites and discourage ad, advertisers from going to those websites, that's taxpayer dollars funding the the prohibition of free speech when it comes to conservative thought. They're doing it in a in a background manner. You take the tax dollars, you funnel them into some private entity that's putting out a blacklist that companies that buy advertising then use that list to determine which websites and which organizations they're going to support. And I gave you the list last week of the 10 top news sites, every single one of them, were conservative news sites. Daily Wire was on there. Newsmax was on there. Um, America One News. I mean, uh, every one of the websites that were being targeted to try to get advertisers to move away were conservative, and it was being funded in part by federal tax dollars, money that you pay in taxes. Um, that This kind of thing, the Biden administration is fully engaged in, and it has to stop. I mean, 
there, there's got to be the American people need to be aware of this and understand that free speech rights can be undermined not just by the government but by the government front door that is the government stepping in and overtly taking away our free speech rights they can do it behind the scenes by funding these different groups that are engaged in undermining conservative free speech rights well now you've got a a progressive activist group called the 65 project And they're targeting attorneys who were hired by Republicans to represent them in cases where there was alleged election fraud. The the 65 Project gets its name from the fact that there were 65 cases filed uh, over uh, the 2020 election to try to prove that there was election fraud. And, of course, it was primarily by Republicans. And any lawyer that was involved in those cases is now a target from the 65 Project. They're targeting specifically lawyers that work for President Trump, lawyers that work for Carrie Lake. That um, They've expanded it out to take her lawyers on from the 2022 midterms because she alleged that there was voter misconduct in Arizona and had to hire lawyers to help her uh, to to back that up. They're targeting with they're targeting these attorneys by filing ethics complaints, uh, and also the attorneys general in the state of California, uh, excuse, excuse me, Texas and Missouri are also being targeted by lawsuits. Now, let me tell you the effect of this. These lawsuits, by the way, are likely going to be thrown out because in order to have a valid lawsuit, you have to be part of the injured party. I mean, there has to be something that has happened that either you've been injured or you're representing people who have been injured, and that can be proven directly that as a result of one person's action, it caused injury to another. And there's no way to make that connection when all these people are simply hiring attorneys to investigate whether or not there was voter fraud. These, the, If you look at the people that are listed on these lawsuits, none of them had a stake in in what was going to happen if there was election fraud. I mean, there were, there, there were no directly injured parties that are on the lawsuits. But here's the thing. If you're an attorney or you're someone being sued, whether there's valid grounds or not, you have to defend yourself, which means you have to put money up that you would use for something else to defend yourself in court. It's likely when a lot of these lawsuits make it into court that judges are going to throw them out. Now, but then you've you've got these election boards in different states that are populated by partisans that lean to the left that are going to lean into this and try to assist in getting these attorneys disbarred. That's their goal. They're threatening these lawyers with disbarment. And the purpose is not necessarily to get them disbarred because, like I said, it's very unlikely that's going to happen. The real purpose here is to intimidate them so that no one will do this again. Let's say you have election fraud and a Republican candidate comes along and says, you know, I want to hire a law firm to represent me. Well, they're going to take a look at this. They're going to realize that if they represent that Republican, that they're likely going to have to answer a bunch of lawsuits. And even though they might be frivolous, even though they might be without standing or bearing, they're still going to have to, as a law firm, lawyer up and go to court and spend money and have their reputation dragged through the mud from a, a willing 
press that's going to cover this in a way that makes these uh, this Project 65 looked like a bunch of heroes, and the lawyers, it's a bunch of meanies who are out there trying to take away Americans' rights. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the whole purpose of this entire project called Project 65. Um, and oddly enough, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's really strange that they're not going after any Democrat lawyers. No lawyers that represent Democrats are being targeted. It's all Republicans and the attorneys general that are being targeted. They're Republican attorneys general that are being targeted by partisan election boards filing lawsuits trying to call them into question for decisions they made related to the 2020 election. Federal senior legal advisor Margot Cleveland said most of the cases where you have disciplinary actions against attorneys are brought by a client or another attorney involved in the litigation. In that case, you actually have a party who was injured coming to the Bar Association. This is not what we're seeing with Project 65 or other independent people who are filing claims. Who is filing the complaint? It's someone who is involved who has a true interest, or is it an outsider? That's the question you want to ask. And if it's an outsider, it's a, it's a case of intimidation. It's a case that's likely not going to have merit. And in fact, when you look at the claims in a lot of these filings, they're false. I mean, they're, just, they're based on things that are not true. And so, again, when they get to court, that's going to be revealed. A lot of them will be thrown out, but it doesn't matter. The damage will already have been done. The message is being sent. If you're a law firm and you represent a conservative or you represent a Republican, then you run the risk of being taken into court, having to pay legal fees, and having your name dragged through the mud and losing other clients because of what you're being accused falsely of doing for Republicans. So this is – we are living in a world, ladies and gentlemen, where corporations, where um, – You've got business curtailing free speech. You've got these organizations that are politically motivated, that are trying to curtail free speech, and all of it is directed toward conservatives. Um, I had one, I had one more thing though. Oh yes, okay. The, an, another question that you would want to ask is, okay, who's behind Project Sixty Five? Are we sure that this is just a bunch of Democrats who are out to silence Republicans? Well. The whole thing, the whole idea of Project 65 was devised by former Clinton administration official Melissa Moss, and it's currently being managed by an attorney who used to work at Perkins Coyle, which is a high-powered law firm that's close to the Democrat Party. So, yes, the evidence is out there. It's plain to see this is an attempt at intimidation toward conservatives, not an attempt to rectify any real wrong that's been done. Okay, today's President's Day. Um, it falls on different days based on what I think it's a particular Monday of uh, the month. Last year, uh, 2022, it fell on February 21st. Today, it falls on February 20th. And, of course, it's a combined holiday. We used to have a holiday for Lincoln's birthday and a holiday for Washington's birthday and then we decided, well, that's just too much trouble. Let's just have uh, President's Day. Yeah, that's it. We'll put those two presidents together, and we'll celebrate their birthdays on the same day. So we're doing that today. Um, and 
I want to I want to highlight. I, I talk about Lincoln a lot on this program, but I want to highlight Washington today. But before we do that, um, I want to remind everybody that a former president, Jimmy Carter, has it was announced over the weekend that he's now in hospice care. Uh, he's been battling cancer since 2014. He's 98 years old, and he's been in and out of the hospital for treatment. And this last last hospital stay, uh, the decision was made that the best course of action was to allow him to go home under hospice care, which basically means he's preparing for um, his death, passing away. And while I have a lot of disagreements with the way that President Carter ran the country, uh, he gets lampooned a lot as being one of the worst presidents of the 20th century and so forth. Um, you know, I, I want to say that as a humanitarian, uh, President Carter, particularly in his years after leaving the White House, spent a lot of his time trying to help the poor. Um, you know, Habitat for Humanity was a big project that he was involved in. He helped build houses. He helped fund uh, building low-cost housing for people that otherwise would have had no home. So there are things about President Jimmy Carter that we need to remember fondly. Uh, that doesn't mean that we forget or that we don't emphasize some of the decisions he made as president uh, that were that were not good decisions. And we also uh, don't forget the fact that his particular understanding of Christianity included things that were not biblical. I mean, we're, we're talking about a guy who ran as an evangelical. He was the first president or the first candidate to openly declare that he was an evangelical back in 1975 as he was running for the White House. Um, and he got a lot of support. He's, he's Baptist. Uh, he taught a, a Baptist Sunday school class. But his particular theology involved support, if I'm not, and, and, and I need to double-check these things. Actually, I'm, I'm not going to talk about some of the theological things until I have a chance to go back and review, because I'd be doing it from memory, and, and I want to be fair uh, to the president. Right now, we need to be praying for him and his family. I mean, obviously, this is a, a difficult time. He's lived a full life. He's 98 years old. He's the oldest living president ever. And so w right now, we think of his family who are at his side and going through what a lot of families go through when someone that they love is in hospice care. And that's what we need to focus on today uh, is praying for him. And there'll be time to evaluate his life and his presidency later. Um, but today on President's Day, I did want to bring some facts forward about George Washington. Washington's one of his biggest contributions to the fledgling republic was the fact that he could have been a king. They wanted him essentially to be a king, a type of almost a type of dictator. And Washington believed so much in the idea of a constitutional republic that he refused. Um, he agreed to be president. He served two terms, and then he stepped down because he realized that power needs to be shared, that someone else needed to be president, that this was he was setting a pattern for the history of the United States when it comes to the executive branch and how that pow power should be held lightly. 
uh, Washington put forth four pillars. He, he put out a circular to the states in 1783, and he listed four pillars as being essential for America's well-being. And I just I wanted to repeat those and talk a little bit about it. First, uh, an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head. So he saw the necessity for it to be the United States, not individual states that simply exist autonomously uh, without some kind of federal direction. We tried the Articles of Confederation as a solution to how the country was going to be run, and they were a disaster because they didn't have enough federal influence. Um, there, there was It was almost impossible to do anything as a group under the Articles of Confederation. So the, 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 that's how we moved to the Constitution that we have now. It's a constitutional republic with three branches of government that are supposed to be co-equal and always looking over each other's shoulder, making sure that the other branch is staying in its lane. So Washington recognized that we need to be indissoluble as a country. The second thing is a sacred regard to public justice. Now, the word sacred here um, speaks of the importance of how everybody had to be treated justly under the law. Uh, Washington recognized that justice that was not equal, justice that was not, uh, the, you know, applied in a way that, that demonstrated that everybody had rights under the law, it was, was not going to work. Now, I understand this happened. He made these statements during a time when slavery was still part of the American scene. Washington freed all of his slaves at his death. He had inherited slaves. Uh, he had, out of the entire estate, there were over 300 slaves. About 123 of them were directly owned by Washington. And when he died, he left in his will that when his wife, Martha Washington, died, that before she passed away, she would free all of the slaves. Washington had a problem with slavery, but it was a part of his time. So when he talked about equal justice, it's not hypocritical for him to say that and then to own slaves. Again, we, we can't go back and take the values that we have come to accept collectively today and impose them on people who were products of their own time because they lived under the values that were publicly accepted and under the laws under the laws that were in place at the time. Washington couldn't even legally um, free the slaves that weren't part that were weren't owned by him, that were part of the estate, even though because Mount Vernon had over 300 slaves. but he made provision for the ones that he had direct uh, control over to be freed, once uh, he died and once Martha Washington passed away. All right, the third principle, the adoption of a proper peace establishment. In other words, making sure that the United States was not a belligerent, not a, a country that was constantly looking to go to war for any kind of um, material gain, uh, that the United States would be essentially a peacemaker in the world. And fourth, uh, the prevalence of that pacific and friendly disposition 
among the people of the United States, which will induce them to forget their local prejudices and policies to make those mutual concessions, which are a requisite to the general prosperity, and in some instances to sacrifice their individual advantages to the interest of the community. Now, I, I want to just point out that in the world we live in today, this is something that we need desperately. The idea that people for the general prosperity of the country, are willing to sacrifice their individual advantages in the interest of the community. Today, it's all about the individual. It's not about the group. It's not about sacrifices made in order to make the country stronger. It's about the advancing of political parties and of individual power. And we need to hear George Washington's words on this President's Day that in order to live together collectively, it requires compromise and sacrifice to make a strong nation. Uh, sacrifice on our part to, to live together.